The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, church. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you who are here this morning and you who are joining us online. Quick announcement. We are going to postpone the outdoor service tonight. We're not canceling it. We're just postponing it to a later date because we are expecting weather and potentially bad weather. It doesn't really work to do an outdoor service when it's pouring down rain. I mean, we could do it, you know, for those of you that are, you know, really, but we'd rather uh, be safe and be able to enjoy it. And so we're going to postpone that to a later date. And We'll keep you posted on when that will be. We're in Revelation. And today our text is chapter 5. So if you'll join me, the words will be on the screen. I'll just read. You just listen. Revelation is meant to be read out loud to the congregation. And so we're going to read chapter 5, 1 through 14. It says this. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sits on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and into the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. God, as always, for your word, we give you thanks. We pray for ears to hear. We pray for hearts to follow. We pray for lives that will obey. And God, I pray that you fill me with the gift of preaching this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Everybody knows this painting. It is, what is it? The Mona Lisa. Raise your hand if you've seen the Mona Lisa. Raise it high. All right. I remember hearing about the Mona Lisa all my life. You see this iconic painting your whole life. And you ask the question, is she smiling? Is she not smiling? And so when you get a chance to go see the Mona Lisa, you want to because this painting is so hyped up. I mean, people talk about it. It's probably one of the most famous paintings in the world. The hype is just goes on and on and on. So when I got to go, a chance to go to Paris, the Louvre, which is where I saw the painting. I think it's still there unless it got moved. When I got a chance to go to Paris and go to the Louvre, I walk up to this painting, the thing, the painting that has been hyped and magnified my whole life and it is talked about with such revere and honor and respect and I can't wait to see this painting and if you had the experience like I did you walk up to the painting and it is tiny it is totally underwhelming maybe you didn't have that experience but that's what I hear from people all the time that when they see this painting they're like oh Really? I mean, you almost need to zoom in, have a high, you know, zoom camera just to even see her eyes. It seems so small. And that's after the fact that in the Louvre, you've walked through this incredible, magnificent display of artwork. You've walked past Nike, the statue of Nike with the wings. It's ginormous, and it's so impressive. And then you walk past This painting of the birth of Venus, which is just glorious and huge and so overwhelming. And then you get to the thing that everybody came to look at, at least most people, because when I was there, more people were around the Mona Lisa than any other painting. That seems to be the painting that everybody comes to see, and there's crowds around it, and it's almost like we're all standing there going, oh, This is totally underwhelming. This is not what I was expecting at all. When we get to chapters 4 and 5 in Revelation, I think this is the feeling that we get. Because in chapter 4, which was read earlier, it's this grand scene of the throne room of God And it says it's this vision of God. It doesn't even make God appear to be human. It only talks about God in terms of he looks like Jasper in a ruby. 
And it says around the throne of God is this rainbow that encircles the throne. And there's these four living creatures that are big and magnificent that are surround the throne of God. And then these concentric circles go out and there's 24 thrones with elders sitting on the throne. And they're wearing white and they all have golden crowns. And there's seven lampstands and the lamps are there. And you just have this overwhelming picture. So much so that I think John has to use all of these images to even get you to recognize this is something I can't even describe. It's like seeing jasper and rubies and like this rainbow, but it's not like any rainbow you've ever seen. And these creatures, but they're not like any creatures you've ever seen. And it's like these thrones that surround, but it's not like any other throne and any other kings that sit on it. I mean, this is a picture of God. And there's lightning, and there's thunder, and they all bow down to the center of the throne, to God. And they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's this vision of God. And it also gives this vision that it's just not a local occurrence. This is the entire creation worshiping. This is universal worship across the board. And then our text, chapter 5, beginning in verse 2 through 4, it says this, after John experiences walking throughout the whole Louvre and seeing Nike and seeing the birth of Venus and seeing all these other magnificent works of art. It says this in chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the scrolls and open, break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, could open the scroll and even look inside it. And so I wept. John says, I wept, and I wept because no one was worthy to open the scroll. This imagery of scrolls, if you go back one slide, this imagery of scrolls, this is imagery that John's audience would know well. It's been speculated on what's inside the scroll, maybe the book of life, maybe other things that you connect with scripture. But one of the things that I think becomes clear in the book of Revelation, that what this scroll represents is that within the scroll that has seven seals on it, and by the way, it is Roman custom that, see, that scrolls of importance, of political importance, be sealed seven times, which is the perfect number. But what becomes really clear in the book of Revelation that within this scroll is the plan of God 
It's given this picture of God who sits on the throne and all the universe comes and worships before him. And then he sees this vision of, of the scroll in the right hand of God. And he goes, who's going to open the scroll? And he looks around in heaven and earth and under the earth and there's nobody. There's nobody there to open the scroll. In fact, not only is this a, is, is this a Roman custom to seal the scroll. But it is a custom that if there is a will of someone, that it be written on a scroll, the will of someone, it be written on a scroll and sealed until the appointed time when an official can come and open that will and read it and say, this is what is to be done. And so, John, he begins to weep. Because he looks around, heaven, earth, under the earth, and he says, there's nobody who has the authority to open up God's plan, to open up God's will. And his tears aren't just that the scroll won't be open. It's not that, oh no, now I can't see what God's plan is. That's not what he's crying about. He's weeping deeply because not only can somebody not open the scroll, but the one who opens the scroll is the one who has authority to carry the will of the one who wrote it out. So he's looking, heaven, earth, under the earth. Who has the authority to do this? Who has the authority to carry out God's will, God's plans? God's purposes on earth. Then in verse 5, it says this. Then one of the elders said to John, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's a powerful image he gives when he says, John, don't cry, don't weep, the lion, the tribe of Judah, can open the scroll. I've seen in my fair share of safaris living in Africa, I've seen in the wild lions just like this, numerous, numerous, numerous times. I didn't take this picture, but I could have on many different occasions. In fact, there was one where we had interns. We had college-age interns with us, and we took them to Murchison National Park, which is in the western part of Uganda. And every time you go on safari, for me, the lion is the animal that you are seeking. I mean, you're going to see tons of gazelle, and if, there's, if they're in this park, you're going to see giraffe, you're going to see elephant, you're going to see, you're going to see all kinds. But this is what you go looking for. And so when you pull up next to another car and safari guide, you say, hey, have you seen lions? They say, yeah, we saw them here. So at this time, I had interns with me, and we went to this certain place where they said they had seen lions. So I get off the track, and I get up into this kind of this high grass, and I'm going fairly slowly, and then all of a sudden, 
I had, it's the best place to, to view animals, and this was very legal to do. I didn't have a pop-up top like a safari truck, but I did have a fairly large truck, and on top was a roof rack, and we would set like mattresses on top, and people could sit up there. I mean, you're way, way up high. So I've got interns up on the top, and we're driving through, and then all of a sudden I hear the interns beat on the car, stop! And I stopped, and about the time I stopped, I am not kidding you, a lion, from me to Josh, pops its head up. It was laying in the grass, and it was this big. And I've got interns sitting on the roof. So parents, when you're ready to send your children with me to Africa, they'll be totally in good hands. Trust me. And I froze. One, I can't believe I didn't run over the guy. Maybe he's huge. And you just couldn't see him. He's down in the grass. But he poked his head up and he looked up. And luckily he had eaten in the past few days. And he just rolls back down. And I tell the interns, don't move. And I thought, this is not safe. Because... That lion in one jump could get up there, but I didn't want to make any sudden moves. So what I did is I just put the car in reverse because going forward, there wasn't much space. And I had my foot on the gas and on the clutch, and I was ready to gun it. I goes, you guys better hold on. If this lion moves, I'm getting out of here. And we sat there, and literally, I'm on, it's a right-hand drive, right? So I'm looking out the window. And the lion is like five feet from me. I've seen lions up close, not in a zoo, in their natural habitat, and they demand respect. I mean, just having that kind of fear, I mean, there was awe and fear all at the same time. They have a presence about them. And what is interesting, I've seen lions, I've seen the power that they have. I've seen them hunt. I've seen them eat. It is a sight to behold. It is one of power. There is a reason why they call the king of Judah a lion. There is a reason why the stories are that the the lion is the king of the jungle. There's a reason why they made a Disney movie, The Lion King. Lions demand respect. They have awesome power. They have a presence about them. I mean, when there was a lion around out on safari, not only are all the people on safari trying to get a look, You can watch every other animal, whether it be gazelle or zebra or giraffe or elephant. If they are in the vicinity where they can see the lion, their eyes don't depart from the lion. Even if the lion is doing nothing, everyone is in fear and awe. And they don't take their eyes off them. But what's interesting about this text is that when John looks at the appointed place 
when he looks to see where the lion is, it says this in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled with the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God out into all the earth. And so when John looks up waiting, who has the respect, who has the power, who has the presence and authority to open the scroll? The elder says, look, the lion. And he looks at the throne expecting to see a lion. And this is what he sees. He sees a lamb. Slain. It is not an image of respect, but an image of humiliation. It is not an image of power, but an image of weakness. It is not an image of fear and awe, but it's an image of what? It's, it's the same feeling except magnified that when you go through all the hype of seeing the Mona Lisa and then you go through this magnificent, magnificent display of glory and honor and artwork and then you get to the Mona Lisa and you go, oh, what just happened? I expected a lion and there's a lamb there. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we don't miss the contrast of imagery that's happening here. Then in verse 7 through 10, it goes on and says this. He went and took the strolls from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scrolls and to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. This is an imagery of a transfer of power. God holds these scrolls in his hand and then he hands them to the lamb that was slain. And everyone says, you are worthy to open the scrolls, the lamb. Because you purchase people with your blood. And you, the slain lamb, have established a kingdom forever. You know, in circles that I'm in, in studies of culture, there is what anthropologists and people studying culture call the myth of empire. And the myth of empire usually goes something like this. It is a story about how an empire or nation comes to be. It is a story about the founding fathers. And there's usually some kind of battle and war that happens. And within that story, the values of the empire are are mediated through that story. So people know exactly what it means to be a part of the empire, who's in control and who has power, and the way they should live. So for example, 
in Rome, at the early part just before Jesus, just at the end of the Republic, before that becomes the Roman Empire, Cicero sought to persuade the Senate to resist the treachery of one of his opponents that was trying to take over. So he calls them to the Temple of Jupiter, which, according to tradition, had been established seven centuries earlier by Rome's founding father, Romulus. At the end of his speech, Cicero speaks directly to the Roman god, invoking the inheritance of the city and the empire he now wishes to preserve. Scholars argue that these appeals to Rome's origin were typical in ancient political rhetoric. The implications that Cicero was casting himself as the new Romulus was not lost on Rome on its day. This was a classic Roman appeal to the founding fathers, to the stirring tales of early Rome, to the moment when the city came into being. But if you know much about history, after this time, Rome falls into a civil war. And the Republic goes away, and what emerges right around the turn, the beginning from B.C. to the birth of Christ, right around that time, a Caesar comes into power, and the Roman Empire begins. And one of the myths that accompany the myth of empire is the myth of the golden age of Rome. Historians and poets in Rome, they talk about that the beginning of history, there was this golden age of universal happiness and that it would be followed by a decline to the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And the question is, will this Golden Age ever be restored? And this is offered as hope and a return to greatness. And so Augustus Caesar, which Augustus means revered, he appeals to the return of the Golden Age offered to give hope for a new era that would arrive with peace and prosperity that would be restored. And Rome proclaimed that when Augustus Caesar became emperor, that he was the one that inaugurated this new era in Rome. And so this is what it looked like, that Rome was worthy to carry out God's will or the will of the gods. That Rome expanded. It did this massive expansion project in order to bring peace and prosperity to the ends of the earth. And finally, what it called for is for everyone under Rome to be allegiant to Rome. But it wasn't just Rome that had this. There was the myth of empire for Jews as well. This will sound familiar to you. So the Jews are under Roman occupation. And they have this great hope for a Messiah, a Messiah that will come and will conquer the Romans, that will reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and a Messiah that will do the will of God. We know that story. This is the great hope of Israel. They're expecting a, li a lion but instead, John sees a lamb. As one of my friends writes, 
about the myth of empire. He says the myth of empire is lived out and recycled again and again amongst empires and nations throughout history. It is the one central myth. It is one of the central myths that the gospel directly addresses. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed in the first century would, would the first century world stood in stark contrast to the myths of empire, both Jewish and Roman alike. And the gospel remains a challenge to our contemporary myths which, persist, which persistently compete with the kingdom of God and our absolute allegiance. This is a story, a scene, about a lamb and the empire. And we propose that in this that we hold up this and we talk about what is happening in this book, in the book of Revelation, and just hold it up as a mirror for each one of us to see what do you see that John intends for his writers to see, I mean his readers to see. For the myth of empire believes that they are worthy to carry out God's plans, but Revelation 5 9 says this, that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. The myth of empire has this myth that it needs to expand both political expansion and military expansion and use its power to secure economic independence and security and prosperity. But verse 9 through 10 says they sang a new song that you are worthy to take the scrolls and to open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased God for every person and every tribe and every language and every people and you've made them to be a kingdom. The empire dreams of expansion all the time this vision says it's all the lamb who was slain it's all his. And finally, the myth of empire wants its name sung. But the fact is that our text says this in verse 13. It says, not only do all the heavenly beings, but then he, John says, then I heard a cry of every creature on heaven and earth and under the earth and under the sea. And this is what they sang. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever. This is the name that's to be sung. The empire and Jesus. One in Revelation is pictured as a beast, the other as a slain lamb. There couldn't be opposite visions, opposite images. The empire appeals to its own greatness to retain power, and the lamb is given power by God. The empire provides security through violence, and the lamb, it provides it through suffering. In his blood. The empire always seeks to justify and expand its own authority, but the Lamb has authority over every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. The empire wants you to sing its name. But the reality is that all creation sings worthy is the lamb who is slain let's stand and sing